Welcome to Podcast 69, brought to you by Help with Parkinson's. Our guest today is Gregory Brown, MD, PhD, student at Penn State College of Medicine. I'm your host, Warren Butvinick. Welcome to the show, Dr. Brown. Hello. Uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, just to start off, um, I'm a student, so not quite a doctor yet, but okay. I'm working on it. Uh, part of my goal, you know, my thesis research is in Parkinson's disease and trying to find ways that we can help it. Primarily, my research is in the cognitive component and looking at biomarkers using MRI to try and diagnose, uh, have more clear prognosis and how it's going to progress. And then more importantly, try and find therapies that are effective. A lot of therapies that we develop now are only really effective in subset populations of Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's disease is such a diverse illness. So by finding ways to subset these uh, groups of Parkinson's patients and find the therapies that are most effective for their particular version of the disease uh, can help us discover new therapies, use the therapies that work earlier, as opposed to going through these trial and error processes, and hopefully overall increase the quality of life for patients. Sounds good. Sounds very interesting. And I see you're in Dr. Wang's lab doing the, uh, I guess, the Parkinson's white matter in the brain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so Dr. Shumei Huang is my mentor and advisor. She's an MD, PhD uh, with decades of experience in PD research and is really enthusiastic and passionate about all of the work that we do and really keeps that focus on helping patients. You know, a lot of research, PhD research, tends to be very mechanistic uh, very lab driven, and sometimes the meaning of it can get lost. It's a, it seems like its only purpose is to publish papers that get put in some journal that nobody ever reads. Whereas Dr. Huang and the lab in general and myself try to keep that picture that it's all about patient focused research and trying to find meaningful, clinically important findings that that have an impact on the health of patients and their you know, quality of life and, and hopefully the understanding disease mechanisms that do translate to new therapies or treatments or some way of alleviating the burden of the disease. Interesting. So the, the white matter, that's, that's uh, up to now, I was always told that you can't really tell Parkinson's from an MRI. Is this something you're trying to find uh, biomarkers that haven't really been found yet? Yeah, so exactly. It's a little bit of the benefit of technology always advancing. So, I mean, admittedly, 10, 15 years ago, you couldn't see it with MRI. And that had always been the classical understanding of what MRI could do, that the imaging capabilities just weren't there. You couldn't go down to the resolution that you needed to look at these brain changes in vivo in humans throughout the course of their disease. So luckily with the advancement of technology, the advancement of these processes, and then taking more of a, a holistic multivariate. So like looking at the whole brain and, and thinking of the brain as a bunch of networks of connections can help us get the, the resolution and that specificity that we need to really help understand the brain changes. So as I'm sure most listeners related to Parkinson's know that it, it was classically viewed as a substantia nigra or, you know, this uh, midbrain part yes. of the brain, uh, very heavy on the movement disorders, and then uh, alpha-synuclein pathology, loss of dopamine. Those are like you know the buzzwords associated with Parkinson's disease. But 
what we're kind of seeing, and I mean, a lot of this stuff that we do is admittedly hypotheses, right? I'm, I'm looking at what my hypothesis, what I, my feeling of the literature is, and tell you, it's tough to say what's fact or not fact. And, you know, we're just in science trying to find out and make sense of what we're looking at. But it seems like Parkinson's disease might be more of a diffuse neurogenerative disorder that something in the brain has trouble handling these trash proteins, which in Parkinson's disease is alpha synuclein tends to be this trash that builds up admittedly primarily in the substantia nigra, but also throughout the brain. And depending on where, you know, I, I personally subscribe to the idea that there is just an innate variability in the patient's experiences of where in the brain these trash proteins build up and whether it's primarily in substantia nigra or, you know, maybe more cortical regions, maybe more in the hippocampus, uh, different regions that get affected differentially can lead to a different constellation of symptoms. And I, I believe that function, um, structure precedes function. So you see structural changes in the brain. They might be too small for us to detect with MRI, but something has to change before you see these functional difference movement, but also I think there's a growing thing in the cognitive field uh, with the aging population. Cognition's a, a pretty hot topic of research. And we do see that admittedly in PD patients, they experience higher levels of cognitive decline. But there's such high levels of cognitive decline in general population. So to sort out, you know, it's very possible that people with PD just happen to also get, you know, cognitive impairments related with general aging, or maybe it's related to the PD and trying to parse out which parts are cognitive or general aging and which parts are disease specific is, is part of my research. Right. Cause it's a very difficult thing to do for somebody that's the average age is 65 years old when you get diagnosed and from 65 to, to 80, that's very hard to figure out whether, whether it's coming from Parkinson's or natural aging. Yeah, exactly. You, you would imagine that a large proportion of people at age 80 are going to have cognitive impairments anyway, to, right. despite the PD. Um, but some parts of it might be due to the PD. You know, neurodegeneration can admittedly cause cognition. And I, I work in the, the white matter realm, but also try to understand that it is gray matter. And it's a little bit of a, you know, we kind of think of the brain, right, as these regions that are connected to other regions. Uh, one way to think about it is telephone lines, right? So you're, you have your city hubs and you have a telephone line and you're trying to make calls between these regions. Well, if the city is damaged, if the node, the gray matter regions are damaged, they might not be able to communicate as well. But also if you have damage in these white matter connections, they, you know, any slowing of that communication can um, be perceived as cognitive loss, that it shows up as cognitive loss. Right. So that's what I look at. And, uh, and I try to see which one it is. Is it the gray matter or is it the white matter? Most of my work's in white matter. It seems like white matter is a promising target. And maybe, you know, if you have gray matter damage, even if it's the gray matter perceives the white matter, you would expect to also see white matter changes. So then, you know, I can kind of catch a little bit of both by measuring the white matter connections. Now, what, what is the uh, white matter and gray matter? What is that? 
So the gray matter is the cell bodies. That's, uh, we call them nodes or hubs or um, nuclei. That's where all the cells actually live. If a cell has to communicate a long distance to another cell, let's say your, your basal ganglia region, your movement region has to go all the way up to your motor cortex, which is the very outside, probably right where you would wear a tiara. If you put a tiara on your head, that's mm-hmm. about where your motor and sensory cortex was. Um, so it has to communicate. That's a few inches, right? So in order to communicate that long distance very quickly, you have to insulate those nerve fibers so that it can communicate. If you look at any of your cables, they have that uh, black rubber insulation. Well, your brain came up with its own insulation of fat called myelin. And that fat is white. So that's why when people look at things, it looks white as opposed to the nodes that don't have as much fat are gray. Interesting. So even that, even that part of the, the field is kind of uh, unknown. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how much is unknown. You know, like we talk about PD. PD was described by James Parkinson's back in the 1800s. And all the way to now, you just don't have a great grasp because there was no way of looking at the brain throughout life. Right. You know, people generously donate their brains to science after they pass away, but you don't get any of that time resolution because you don't know, you know, you just look at their brain usually in a very degenerated state, very end stage of the disease. And you're like, oh, well, there's a lot of disease burden here or there, but you don't know which came first, which came second. You don't get any of that time picture because it's late. And then you don't get any of the early stage things. So you don't really know how it, how it first started. You see like, oh, like there's definitely a lot of alpha synuclein pathology at the end, but you know, what caused the alpha synuclein pathology? What are those things? And without any way of looking at the brain, you couldn't do that. And now MRI provides that tool. There's some other tools, right? fMRI, which is functional MRI is a little different. That measures like oxygen use in the brain. That's a way of looking at the brain. PET uh, is another way. Mm -hmm. I like MRI because MRI is widely available, right? Every hospital that you walk into has an MRI machine. PET, they probably have a PET, but it's very expensive. And so with fMRI, you don't see those used as much clinically. But whereas like, if we could make MRI work, that, you know, people get MRIs all the time. So it would be a easy switch to get that to be clinically useful. Right. So if you can get biomarkers and also the better MRIs, it would be the same as cutting somebody's brain out at, after death. You'd be able to study it earlier in the, in the disease. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's kind of the, the point with it is that, you know, I have this tool now that lets me really look at your brain with pretty good uh, resolution throughout life. So I can take multiple images at different time points and see it. How, how does your disease change? Because otherwise you have to use like, you know, a surrogate where you're just like, Oh, this person passed away with three years of disease duration right. versus seven. It's like, well, the intrapersonal, the between person variability is so high. Whereas now you can see, well, how did one person progress over years? And that's one of the benefits of, you know, the lab that I'm in that Dr. Huang has had that foresight that before we even knew what we could do with MRI, she was like, well, let's collect this MRI. And she's been collecting MRIs on patients for you know, over a decade now. Right. And 
the ability for me to come in and use my engineering skill set and be like, okay, now the data has already been collected because there's no way to collect 10 years of data without 10 years of time. Mm-hmm. So it's easy now for me to come in and look at the data. And that's one of the things that I, I support and I understand with PD patients that particularly with PD, because the first five years or so is mm-hmm. what we call a, a honeymoon phase. Right. So the therapies are working, you know, patients feel relatively okay and they don't feel at that point, like they want to get involved in research. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I always support people's decision to do whatever they feel is best for them. You know, it's their life. They have to feel comfortable, but you know, from a research point of view, those, those early stage diseases is really where there's a lot of interest in what's going on, on, on how the processes fold out. So that first five years is, is important to us as a, as researchers, but I understand that, you know, going through all these studies at, at that point, you know, when you're just grappling with the diagnosis itself is, is troubling and, and difficult. Right. And the problem is when you get more advanced, it's harder to get out of the house mm-hmm. to do it. Yeah. So it's kind of a, it's kind of the same pro- different problem. They both cause problems different ways. Yeah. 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 We, we definitely see a uh, lack of involvement both early, early and very yeah. late stages, but right. that's the nature of the research. But, but ideally, if you could check somebody's brain with a high-quality MRI every year or two, and then when they pass away, have them donate their brain to science, that would be a, a great database of information, wouldn't it? Yeah, and that's exactly what we're doing, right? Uh, you know, we ask and we hope that all of the patients that are in our studies are, are you know, many are willing to donate their brains to science. Um, I think we're at about 25 brains now. Uh, in our in our brain bank so that's the the data is there and that's exciting you know you got to get good quality data first and then to do the analysis on it and look at it and try and come up with clinical answers because you know the data is great but until you can convert that into something that helps patients you know what are you doing and that's kind of the idea is like well if you, you can get a really good strong correlation between the mri and that postmortem pathology, then you start to realize like, well, maybe we can diagnose it. Maybe we can trace people. Maybe we can find people who are at risk and start mm-hmm. giving them MRIs so that we can look at the disease or, or more accurately try and find therapies that are specific or give patients knowledge about the disease. Okay. Like, you know, maybe you have more of a postural instability version of the disease versus a rigidity version, you know, maybe, and, and I don't know, each patient's different, whether they like that information or not, whether they'd like to know if they have a faster progressing version versus a slower progressing version. Those are questions that people ask, but I think it's important to at least have the information in case they do want it. Right. And I guess the, the knowledge right now is that the younger you have it diagnosed, the less of a chance of uh, having dementia. Yeah. Yeah. So probably, be, you know, my, my idea with that is the younger that you have it diagnosed, the more classic Parkinson's you have. Right. Whereas if you don't have classic Parkinson's, which is a substantial, you know, that classic alpha synuclein, you have what I consider. And, you know, again, this is just a hypothesis, so I don't want to overstate it, but I, I think of it as like metabolic disease of the brain. Mm -hmm. You know, so you have high cholesterol. Some people have diabetes. Some people have high cholesterol. A lot of people have both. And it's, you know, it's highly, uh, 
you know, it's a lot, it's highly genetic. Like there's something about the, them, this person that can't really break down nutrients as well, or utilize nutrients as well. Similar thing in the brain, you know, as you get older, your brain, everybody's brain has difficulty clearing these trash proteins, osteonuclein mm-hmm. for Parkinson's disease, and then tau and amyloid are the big trash proteins of Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you think maybe, you know, these people who don't have classic beauty, they probably have some overlapping of this metabolic disease of the brain where their brain's not capable of clearing this trash as well. And then that's why you see probably an overlying cognitive picture, which is, you know, maybe Alzheimer's, maybe something else, but some overlying cognitive component as well as the PD. So it's more of a PD plus AD as opposed mm-hmm. to a cognitive picture of Parkinson's. Right. Interesting. So um, we always ask on this show, when we get somebody as a guest, what, what made you devote your life to this type of thing? Has something happened in the past or found it interesting? Yeah. So uh, for me, it stems from a interest in helping alleviate the burden of disease. So my goal throughout life has been that, that I've, I've really been compassionate about other people and trying to use my intelligence and my abilities to treat human disease. Why I got into this field has been a little bit more winding. So I, I don't have anybody in my life with Parkinson's disease or really cognitive decline in general. Um, but I do like the brain. It's a really fascinating organ. Um, and then you think back on the impactful patient experience that I've had as I, I started to realize that I did want to do, you know, I'm a problem solver. Engineers are problem solvers. And the problems I want to solve are those related to health and disease. You think about, okay, like, you know, I have interacted with patients with PD. I've interacted with patients with cognitive line. And I, I really enjoy trying to help that patient population, you know, help ease the burden throughout that last few decades of life, how to make that the most fulfilling most highest quality of life, you know, how do we make that as great as we can for people? And however they define great to me, that's really important is what do you want to get out of these last few years and try and, and try and put them in a position to do that. It's nice. You, you get to use all your uh, training too with the, the engineering part of it. Now, were you doing something with falls? Preventing falls. Yeah, yeah exactly. That, thank you for mentioning it. So right now I'm getting into another project related to PD and that's to prevent falls and Parkinson's disease. So it's, it's quite early project. And, and right now we're at what we call customer discovery. So I, I don't want to bias people too much with what our ideas are because it's important for me to develop a device that people would want to use and not what I think they want to use. So if anybody wants to talk to me about mobility, they can contact me at gxb63 at psu.edu. And I would love to, to hear what they feel their needs are. Because in engineering, the big thing is, you know, you think about these devices that are on the shelves that people buy. Well, that has to start somewhere. And you have to come up with an idea and then prototype. You revise your prototypes and then eventually you get it to the market. Well, because we're so early right now, you don't want to start with a bad idea. So we're very high in brainstorming, big in, in trying to find out what people actually need, how the disease affects them, so that we can come up with you know a list of requirements, whether that be you know a very a cheap device, a highly um, transportable device. You know maybe it might not even be a device. Maybe it, it could be an app. Maybe it could be 
um, something else, a therapy, you know, you don't want to try and put anything in a box at this point. At this point, it's, it's heavy on brainstorming, trying to lay out all the possible options before we decide on the, the best path forward. Right. So you're, you're looking for, towards the future for, with your training to figure out what's out there and hope that one of those things you thought about could do something. Yeah, exactly. So um, it, at, at this point, I, I do work on a bunch of projects, but this project is specifically, you know, we found that there's, a, there's definitely a need. You start with the need that, you know, people with Parkinson's disease have mobility issues, they fall, uh, fractures are a major uh, risk of PD that, that, you know, even further decreases their mobility and quality of life. So you first, you identify this need, you know, this is a problem that needs solving. Really, I, I don't want to bias people with the idea starts with like, you know, walkers have been around forever, right? Walkers and canes and haven't really been innovated on, haven't been totally changed to come up with something radically different. And, you know, because I'm young and I'm not biased by years of systems and how we've been doing it for decades, sometimes it can come in with a fresh look and go, well, what if we did it totally differently? And those new innovative ideas can come up with pretty uh, simple solutions to that have big impact. Sounds really good because falls are the most dangerous thing because once you fall, you end up in assisted living or um, in bed and then you get pneumonia. So it's, uh, it's probably the scariest part of having Parkinson's disease is is the following mm -hmm. yeah exactly so it, it's definitely a problem you know and that's kind of the thing is you see these big problems and you're like well how do we how do we come up with impactful solutions right so you're open to anything yeah yeah and to be honest you know like i don't have parkinson's i don't know exactly what people need or what they want so you so right now it's called customers and i do these interviews and i try to talk with patients and just listen to them tell me their stories you know go to support groups and things and just hear what they say they need which might be totally different than what i think they need and that way you keep this this big picture so that when we do decide on a design prototype and we have a few ideas mm -hmm. floating around obviously but when we design decide on a design it's really the optimal design right in engineering it's all about optimization so that we've come right. up with the optimal design that now, once we start to devote money and resources and, and prototyping and materials on that, it's, it's really what we feel is the best design moving forward. Right. It definitely pays to have somebody with Parkinson's help you out with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we have a few people, but are always willing to talk with people and, and get their inputs and bounce ideas back off and be like, Hey, like this prototype, would you guys even use this? Is this actually what you want? Right. Um, what do you, you know, do you want a $50,000 cure or do you want a $50 works pretty well. Right. And uh, being that, that similar to uh, Alzheimer's, do you keep an open database with all your uh, research in case something happens that you this person may, may actually end up with Alzheimer's? Uh, yeah, we, we try and keep contact with people. Um, I don't do a ton of the data acquisition, but it's, it is a big deal, right? To trace the, to track these people and figure out how they progress through life. And, and you mentioned, and, and because we do have about 25 brains donated already, we see, you know, and I'm just taking this number. I know the number, I'm not even sure if it's published yet, but it's like, it's about 50% of PD patients have an Alzheimer's co-pathology, oh. which means that when you look at the brain, it's like, 
if they, it almost matters what they got diagnosed with first, right? right? Usually if you get Parkinson does come a little bit first. So they get put in this box of Parkinson's disease. And then from their knowledge, Parkinson's dementia. Whereas, you know, maybe if they didn't have a severe tremor, you know, they would have gone to see their family doctor and, and got diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And then, you know, maybe had some tremor later, but you see that it, it really does happen in a large portion of PD patients that they also get this co-pathology, this overlying right. Alzheimer's. And do they, they have Alzheimer's when you, like were they ever diagnosed with it or did you just find it out at autopsy? Yeah. So admittedly, the diagnosis is tough because it's both of these, like all these things are clinical. And if you already have PD and you're seeing a neurologist regularly, what good is it for that neurologist to tell you that you have Alzheimer's and that we don't have treatments for it? Right. So to put a formal diagnosis, you know, they'll mark down that you have cognitive impairments, right? And we see that, that PD patients have cognitive impairments. And then it keeps getting reported in literature that these PD patients have PD cognitive impairment, right? And it's the cognitive impairments are so related to the PD, but you don't really know because as cognitive impairments go, it's hard to differentiate cognitive, like Alzheimer's cognitive impairment versus a PD cognitive impairment, right? right. They all show up the same thing as memory and especially executive function. If you lose executive function, that can show up as a, as a bunch of different ways right. because right, everything that we do cognitively involves holding at least 10 things in our head at any given time and, and balancing that and trying to, you know, attention, provide attention to it. Right. Um, so it, clinically, it's very difficult to do. But like that's part of the research. Maybe I can come up with a more objective measure of PD cognitive impairment versus an Alzheimer's cognitive impairment. Yeah, I guess you need another twenty-five brains of people without Parkinson's to see how many. Um, yeah, yeah. Them yeah. have the have the um, Alzheimer's. So you're right, and that's again a big part of just collecting data. These you know great data sets is so important because we bring these patients in, and, and fortunately, a lot of their spouses are willing to also donate the brains to science right. afterwards as well. So that helps us try and keep things both sides, both control and PD. But you're right. Most people with PD are more willing to donate the brains to science than just a healthy control. Right. Now, with the better MRIs, how, how far away do you think we are before you be able to actually see the, something like the Alzheimer's that you would find an autopsy? Um, are, we, are we years away or 10 years away? Yeah, so it's tough between research and clinical usability i would say we're probably within five to ten years of a clinician having some form of measurement right just like you come back with your blood sugar mm -hmm. they can come back with like a level of damage here and there right and they might even quantify it or look at it you know a lot of a lot of doctors just use their eye test, right? They don't need a number to tell you how much damage you have here and there because they can use their eye. It's a little bit harder because it's a little bit minute in, in PD MRIs, but I think that's kind of close that you have a, a quantifiable marker that will come back on your chart and a doctor will be able to look at it and interpret it that, right? Mm -hmm. Just because you have, you know, 70% amyloid or whatever that number is. I'm not even sure the unit, but right. Just cause you get a number back gives you a gray zone because it's, it is kind of about the symptoms. You know, people can have people who pass away have very high levels of amyloid burden, but very low cognitive deficits and other people right. have low 
amyloid burden and high cognitive deficits. So it's like, even if we knew the amyloid to cognition isn't one-to-one, so it's, it's tough to know. So it's a little bit of linking that system, but being like, oh, like I'm seeing a little bit of cognitive impairments. I'm also seeing some, you know, pathology here in the brain, you know, and then we give the doctors the tools to make those decisions and, and really translate it into something patients understand right. and, and can deal with. Sounds good. So uh, could you give your uh, number again or your email address? Yeah, for yeah. People? so exact. The best way for people to contact me is G X like in xylophone, B63 at psu.edu. Good. And Gregory Brown, right? Yep. Gregory Brown. Thank you. Yeah. So um, thanks for coming today. This is a real nice talk. Yeah. Yeah. It was a pleasure to have me on. Thank you. I appreciate it.